0: Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. It is great to see you. If I've not met you, uh, my name is Peter Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here, and just glad that on everything you could choose to do uh, this morning, you came and decided to spend a few hours uh, with other folks in a room, and some of you may be trying to figure out what you believe about faith and spirituality and Jesus and Christianity And if that's where you find yourself, man, we're sure glad that you trusted us with your time uh, and that you were willing to be here today. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, thanks for gathering together as a body to be with a bunch of other people who believe the same things. And through our time together as a body, hopefully we can encourage each other. Uh, There's something meaningful about just singing together, even though it's a very strange thing to do, right? This is one of the few times in the world where you come into a place and you sing with a bunch of people you don't know. Uh, you don't do that when you go get Pepe's Pizza, right? It's not like you walk in and order a pepperoni pie and burst into song. Uh, this is it's kind of a weird, for those of us who've been in church our whole lives, This, of course we're in church, but if I ever walked into like a diner and they all just started randomly singing, I'd be like, bro, this is a freaky place. Uh, but we do that because there is something meaningful about those of us who believe the same thing, using our voices together to affirm truths and we hear one another, we join in each other's, affirming that, and it can give us strength and hope sometimes when a bunch of us need some strength and hope. So thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for being part of this body. What we're striving to do is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And so there were a bunch of you yesterday who had on amazing blue shirts, because if you were here um, about 25 hours ago, the room did not look like this. This was the very hub of NASCAR Lego racing. Uh, yesterday, about 25 hours ago, if I'm doing my math right, and I'm sure I'm not, but man, this room had racetracks, it had popcorn machines, it had balloons, it had banners, in it, and the best thing that it had was a ton of folks in here with their kids and with their families, and it was an amazing chance for a bunch of you to serve people in our community and just give them a safe place to come with their kids to build Legos and hopefully through that to catch a tangible glimpse of God's love. And so we could not have done that without tons of you giving up your time yesterday. So if that was you, uh, I just want to thank you and appreciate you. And so thanks for being part of this body who used your gifts and as a disciple wanted to serve and impact other people. So I'm going to clap for you if I can do that. <clears throat> um And here's the amazing thing. If you don't have an opportunity to use your gifts to serve others here at Calvary, do we have a deal for you? Because we have ample, it is not just one Saturday a year, we have ample opportunities. And there's a way if you check out the visitor contact card or the little bulletin, either through a QR code or a hard copy, if we can help you in any way by praying for you, you can let us know that. If you have questions about Calvary, if you want to know how to make the next steps, if you'd love to know how you can serve others, we'd invite you to fill out that card. It's in the bulletin. You can rip it off. drop it in one of the brown offering boxes uh, or alternatively do that digitally um, because we'd love to help you find your place in this church and then find a way for you to use who God has made you to be to help reach and impact other people. So um, thanks for being here. We're going to get into our text. I appreciated Emmanuel's prayer. I appreciated the theme that was in all those songs about the hope and the confidence that we can have in God, Uh, the acknowledgement That sometimes we get weary, and sometimes we get beat up, and sometimes life can be incredibly, incredibly challenging, and we just find ourselves in these dry periods of of waiting. And I think the songs gave us a great reminder that in those moments, the strength of God is there, even if we don't feel it. And in many ways, um, that's what a big theme, in a unique way, out of the text is and what we're going to be studying today. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get jump into it. Father, we do thank you for the reminders that you give to us in so many different ways at so many different times of truth. And we do think, as Emmanuel prayed, for the folks in different regions of the world who just, in a moment, their lives were changed. And uh, I echo his prayers for peace and comfort amidst incredible grief and deep, deep, deep questions and loss. And Father, there's people in this room whose lives have changed in a moment. And they are coming to you uh, looking for comfort, looking for encouragement, looking to more strongly anchor themselves to the words from you. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit will help them to cling to you uh, and the challenges that they face. I thank you that you are a loving Father who knows the exact plan you have for our lives and you are in control of it all and you are authoring it all and um, you tell us you are good. And so you invite us to trust you. And so no matter where we find ourselves, Father, will your Spirit give and uh, the strength to trust you more as we face whatever it is we're facing? Father, we're grateful for the chance to open up your Word, and um, I pray that today we will learn, as there's some academic things that you've revealed to us, but Father, you also don't want to waste your Word just in learning because you're revealing to us truths about you. And so I pray that what comes through about your heart and what you want to do through this passage will also come clear. And thank you for Jesus, and it's in His name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we kind of kick off this morning, man, just a a few questions for us to think about and a few things for us to press into. Have you ever had doubt kind of creep into your life? You, You know that maybe you're a Christian and you know through Scripture that God has made all sorts of promises to us, but... There's circumstances in your life that have started to happen and those circumstances start to press up against those promises, right? And you just start to feel a little bit of doubt creeping in. Maybe you know and you believe God's promises, but but things are happening in your lives and you're just like, I just feel this anxiety about how is God going to work all of these unknowns out? All of these curveballs, all of these changes, all of these things I'm looking at down the road, I mean, I believe there's a God, I believe what I sang, but man, I just, I don't know how He's going to bring all this together and I don't know how it's all going to resolve. Maybe in your story you've seen God show up for you countless times before. I mean, you could spend <clears throat> in the next 45 minutes not listening to me, but you could write down in your journal time after time after time that you face something in your life, whether health, whether relationally, whether financially, whether job, whether just something, and man, God showed up for you, and you're like, yes, God showed up for me in the past, but maybe you're a little bit like me, but you're facing something today. And, and you may not express it to the people in your community group, but the question that you have running through your mind is well yeah god showed up a bunch in the past but what about this time is he really able is he really willing to show up for me one more time or have i used up all my all my blessings from god Have you ever had things in your life that you believe in God, but even though you believe in God, there's still doubt. You know what his promises are. You know what his character is. You know what his heart is. But you're looking at a circumstance or you're looking at a future or you're looking at a choice, and you're like, I mean, I know that about God, but I just don't see how this is all going to work out. Or you know it's worked out for you so many times because of his care. But this time, you're like, I just I don't, I, don't, I don't know if maybe I've used up all his mercies and all his kindness. Have you ever just needed a little encouragement? And I don't mean like <clears throat> encouragement where you go to your favorite bagel shop and they give you a free bagel because you're the best customer. I mean, have you ever just been discouraged and you needed supernatural, divine encouragement from God? You know what the word encouragement means? It means to give courage. Right, You're facing something, and you're worried, and you're just like, God, I just need courage and encouragement from you. Maybe you face faced those things in the past. If you haven't, you are going to probably, if you're human, face those things one time in your life. And maybe for some of us, those are the very things we're facing this morning. And if you've ever faced those things, or when you face those things, or if you're facing those things now, then you're going to be able to relate to what the people who read the book and the, heard the letter of Revelation for the very first time were most likely facing at about where we are in our study. If you've ever had any of those questions or any of those doubts or any of those thoughts, then you can probably relate to the very feelings and questions and uncertainties and emotions that the readers of this letter would have been feeling when they got to where we are about in our text. If you're visiting Calvary, we are in the book of Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible. It is a book that has to do with uh, the first couple chapters were about dysfunctional churches at the time the letter was written, and the rest of the book, under the perspective we're taking, seems to talk about things that are yet to come. It is a very odd study to jump into for your first Sunday, but that's okay, because we're glad you're here, and we'll all catch up to speed, but we spent a bunch of time to date kind of working through the book and laying the foundation for where we are. What we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible, and we work through it, chapter through chapter, paragraph through paragraph. We're doing that in the book of Revelation. And like we kind of set up last week, uh, initially, when you wanted to read the book of Revelation, you would not open up a little leather-bound Bible and flip to the very last Pages that were affixed within that to read Revelation. If you initially wanted to read the book of Revelation, Maybe you're like, I don't do Bibles, I do my app. That's amazing. You would not get your iPhone and go to your Bible app and scroll through New Testament and click the last thing on the list that says Revelation. Initially, the content of Revelation was not something that was bound together in a book like this. It was not something that was digitally accessible on an app. Re- initially, the content of this book was a letter. We talked a little bit about that last week. It was a letter. And it was sent around to at least seven churches and would have circulated the region of that country, right? One church would have read it, would have kept a copy. They would have made another copy for their buddies down the road. Somebody would have gotten on a camel or whatever, right? Uh, And they would have run to the next church. And this was a letter that a church would have gotten. And they would have gathered everybody in the church together. And maybe they would have sung a few songs and said, hey, guess what, church? We got a letter that was written that we're going to read to you. And so the letter then would have been read. And when we get to where we are today in the text, here's what the people sitting on the blue chairs in about 95 AD, when they got the letter, here's what they would have, what, what would have been going on in their story. We talked last week that they were facing persecution. So they would have been there that morning <clears throat> hearing this letter, that would have been already talking about some persecution. They, that would have been very real in their story. They would wonder when they left, are Roman authorities going to follow us out of here? And up to this point in the letter, through all that they had studied and heard, they would have heard six things, uh, five or six things that most likely were going to happen down the road. So let's pop the slide, and here's what they would have heard. <laughs> Yo, that's amazing how that happened. All right, they would have been sitting there hearing this letter, facing persecution, facing death, lots of i mean, uncertainty about that. Then they would have heard about these next two things that were going to come down the road. They would have heard that there was going to be this season of peace. This is what we studied in all of our weeks together so far. Well. There would have been, then they're going to hear about this, that one day there's going to be this immense violence that breaks out over the earth, whether it's nations fighting nations, whether it's civil war within countries, whether it's just anarchy. Then they would have heard that famine and food shortage would have flowed out of that. From that would have been death. <clears throat> then last week, what we talked about was this reality that people were going to be killed for their faith and those martyrs' prayers for j- j- vengeance. And then this future description of this time when there's going to be earthquakes and eclipses, they would have been sitting in their blue chairs that morning, probably 25 minutes into this letter. It's taken us like 42 months so far. 25 minutes into that letter, they would have been thinking, man, I just hope I can get home safely. Then they would have been hearing, oh, and by the way, one day, someday, there's going to be a little bit of peace, which is good, but then there's going to be absolute chaos and violence and war. Then there's going to be famine. Then there's going to be death. Then there's going to be martyrs. Then there's going to be eclipse and earthquakes. And they would have been sitting there that morning hearing all of that. And at the end of last week's chapter, there was this question that they would have heard. And the question in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 17, ends with this question. This There's a description of these earthquakes and these eclipses. And then these people who aren't followers of Jesus said to this, right? They're calling out to the mountains, verse 16 of chapter 6. And rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For their great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The people in the blue chairs that morning would have heard that when all of this stuff happens, one of the questions that's going to be asked is, who can stand? Who can make it? Who can persevere? Are we all going to be wiped out by this, right? Who can stand? And what most scholars almost have agreement on at this point in the letter, they were to start to get a little anxious. Because even though they would have known already some promises about what God has said to them, about his protection to them that this question of who can stand maybe in their own story started to have a little doubts about, man, am I going to be able to stand? Are these things going to come down the road? Are they going to wipe me out? Is God going to forget about me? They would have come to church on a Sunday morning looking for some encouragement, and all they would have heard was boom, 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 boom about all these really bad things that potentially were going to happen to them. And on that morning, whenever they were sitting there in their church with their free cup of coffee, sitting on the blue chairs, this was a lot of heavy, heavy stuff to process. We, We are... Thousands of years removed from this, we're approaching this one little week at a time, but when you're in the real time of it all, it just would boom, boom, boom. And the question that reverberates at the very last sentence read to them on that morning so far would have been, who can stand? It's heavy to process. The circumstances they were in, the circumstances they would hear coming down the road, all the truth about the reality of what very likely could happen... Most scholars think at this point, just because of what chapter 7 is, their confidence, their encouragement, their hope, their ability to remember what God has promised and stand strong in the midst of this, even when the, all this bad news is coming at them, it, that was all starting to get a little shaky. Things were starting to get a little wobbly for them in their faith and in their, con- in their confidence, some worries were probably starting to creep in. Some questions and anxieties were starting to creep in. And like we started this morning asking about, have you ever been there? Have you ever just been hit? with this unsettling news from all sorts of different directions or this news or this, this reality or this circumstance or this thing in your life that you weren't expecting to have happen and you're smack dab in the middle of it and you're like, I don't even know where to turn or what to do. I don't even know. How, do, how am I going to be able to stand? Sometimes news, unforeseen things, that hits us and it causes us to be worried. We've seen that probably in your family if you're a child, if you can think back to when you were much, much younger, or if you're a parent or a grandparent and you think about the story of the experiences of your own kids, your own grandparents, right, that in our lives as children... And in the lives of us as parents who parent our children, there's these moments that come when we're kids that circumstances happen and we get sad, we get scared, we get worried, we get anxious, things seem to fall apart. Uh, We in our house with four kids have had a multitude of different pets, multitude of different pets. We went through a season where hamsters were really big in our family. We went through a season where we had uh, (laughs) hamsters. Anybody here got a hamster? We'll put you on the prayer sheet if you do. (laughs) Hamsters are amazing. We had a few different hamsters, and for a variety of reasons, we had to get different hamsters. Um, But at one season in our life, we had a hamster whose name was Nutmeg, Nutmeg was like, I think, a Syrian dwarf hamster. Nutmeg was about the size of a golf ball, okay? So imagine a little furry thing the size of a golf ball, right? Furry, cute, sweet. I had a child who just loved nutmeg. And how could you not? Because nutmeg was adorable. It was wonderful. We had some friends come over, and uh, this was when my kids were much younger, right? We had some friends come over, and of course, what you do when you have friends come over is everybody's got to see nutmeg, right? And so, <clears throat> you know, I think I kind of gave some pretty clear directions about, like, okay, let's not pick up nutmeg, because I still remember, like, one time a hamster bit my finger when I was little, and I would like, shake that thing off, right? So I'm like, I do not want any lawsuits. So I, I don't remember my exact comments about nutmeg and what to do with nutmeg, but I think I might have said, okay, don't pick up nutmeg. Or if you pick up nutmeg, right, because nutmeg is the size of a golf ball and we're in a room with countless numbers of bed and, you know, toy, like just play it with nutmeg in this little box that we had. We put nutmeg in a box. It was big box. You have your little toys in there. And shoot. Okay, so great. I, we, I thought we had an understanding. So we <clears throat> were sitting at dinner with these guests who are over that we don't know. That well. And all of a sudden, (laughs) I hear this shriek. And then one of my children comes down the stairs because this child has encountered some news that has rocked their world. And the news was this, right? My child who adores nutmeg standing at the foot of the stairs with tears streaming down their face saying, Daddy. Nutmeg got away, right? Apparently, our friend's child decided to play with Nutmeg, and Nutmeg decided it was going to take a hike, and this was its moment to cross the border and get the freedom or something, right? Because Nutmeg was like, man, I'm hot. So they were playing with that. Nutmeg scurried off, and my daughter, my child, my child, <laughs> my child is distraught. Because my child took such good care of nutmeg. And there's tears. And there is, this is a significant moment in this child's life. And so, you know what I do then when my kid has faced this circumstance that has just totally not foreseen and totally changed trajectory things? You know what I did? I wanted to encourage them. Right? So I got up from dinner. I'm like, hey, child. We're going to go look for nutmeg, right? I know you're saying, but let's go, let's go look for nutmeg. I try to just calm them down. I try to be present. I try to speak truth and encouragement to them. And I said, come on, let's go get nutmeg. I then, this is true. Sometimes I exaggerate a little bit. This is not an exaggeration. I am walking up the stairs with my child. Come on, let's go, let's go. And I am, I am praying, dear God, I don't know if you care about, not out loud in my mind, I don't know if you care about hamsters, but you have got to help me find this hamster. Well, I was praying, like literally. We may have even had a nice parent or pastoral moment and prayed outside the door. I don't know. But then I went inside the door, and it was like SEAL Team 6, man. I flipped on my night vision. No, I didn't. But man, I, And guess what? It was a miracle at a moment as I was best, my best, like, you know, I was a parole officer, so I used to track people, right? If you're hiding in the closet, I am going to find you, okay? So I'm like, so I'm in my bed. I'm, all of a sudden I see this. I hear this little... And I see this little scurry, and I have one chance to capture Nutmeg. And the sovereignty of the Lord Almighty helped me capture Nutmeg and return her to safety, right? There was much exaltation and joy in the house, but before any of that had happened, right, when my child was in that moment of sadness and despair and loss and unknown and everything's horrible, nothing good's going to ever happen because I'm not going to see nutmeg. As a parent, I'm like, ho, 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 let's just pause. Let's just pause. I'm here for you. Let's, let's not worry about worst-case scenarios. Let's calm down. Let's take a breath. Let remind you of some things, and let's move forward. I paused as a parent to encourage my child who was facing a circumstance that caused all sorts of grief. Maybe you can remember a moment as a kid when you had something happen that was really hard, and your parents or grandparents just paused in that moment to let you know they were there, to let you know that they loved you. Maybe you can remember that as a parent, or grandparent, when you had your own nutmeg story, and you just paused to get close to your kid to say, oh, let's just take a time out, and let me just speak truth and love and encouragement to you. That is what God is doing in chapter 7 of Revelation. God is in chapter 7 of Revelation to the original readers who have been sitting on their own blue chairs with questions and with anxieties and with concerns and with worries and with these circumstances has changed their whole trajectory of the lives. There are a ton of things we're going to see later today that scholars are like all over the board about. There is so much disagreement among conservative scholars, never mind liberal scholars, about what Revelation 7 talks about. But one thing that there is this vast... Uh, I would say, you, Nan, a lot of agreement about, is, man, that, that this is an intervening chapter. It is a footnote. It is a timeout. And it is God saying, before we go any further, readers, listen, listen, before we go any further about what will happen or what's coming down the pike, let me remind you and let me reassure you of what I've already promised and what I've already done. In the middle of all your questions and fears, time out, readers of the thing. Let me just pause. Let me just drop a footnote. Let me just pull you aside. And I know all that stuff has freaked you out, but let me just look you in the eye and kneel down to where you are and let remind you of what I've promised you and what I have already done in furtherance of that promise. So over the next two weeks, we're gonna work through chapter seven. Again. Um, I'm loving putting this series together, but I'm really trying to balance, like, you know, making sure we're pacing it well for all of us, because I don't want to hit, like, really hard things with two minutes left in the sermon. So we're gonna, well, there's no rush, right? I'm the guy that puts together the preaching calendar, so we could be here till 2037. Who knows? Could be. I could be 112 years old, still talking about Revelation chapter 8. Open up your Bibles. All right, I'm going to read to you all of Revelation chapter 7, and then we're going to work through the first about, I don't know, 12 or so verses today, and then next week we'll come back with the next text. But here's what we read. This is the timeout. This is not now in the chronology of Revelation. This is a pause. This is a footnote. This is a parenthesis. and here's what it says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, important word, we have sealed the servants of our God on the foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Good luck with what that means in the next 10 minutes, but we'll get there. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 of the tribes of Judah were sealed, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, and then 12,000 from a bunch of other tribes, and then verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing... Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. With remember that word "standing" is important because the question that's setting all this up is that question of the end of the six. Like man, who's going to stand? Who's going to stand through all this? So this vision of these people from all tribes, all languages, all nations, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice: "Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then this next passage aligning with what Emmanuel affirmed in his prayer about what God has in store for us one day. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more, the sun shall not strike them for any, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is a loving father getting in front of his people saying, Time out. Let me tell you some things to encourage you in the midst of what you're facing. This time out text starts with this uh, a vision, right? A description of God holding back judgments in verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the or earth. Now, again, if you're just jumping in with us, Revelation is such a book filled with such imagery and metaphor and symbolism. And in this case, Uh, these winds that are coming on the earth, right, they're symbolic of this judgment. And so what's happening is that there's these angels holding back the winds. There's these angels that God has said, wait, wait, you wait to hold back judgments on the earth that no wind, that no judgment might come upon the earth or sea or against any tree. So what's going on is God's saying, look, I'm going to hold back judgments on the earth until a specific thing happens. And that specific thing that that happened is in the very next couple of verses. Then I saw another angel, verse 2, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been giving power to harm the earth and saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... Right? So, so hold back the judgments. Don't let any of the pending judgments and things that are gonna happen and consequences for sin. Don't roll those out until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Right? So don't start that until we seal the servants of God on our foreheads. Today, if you are bored by the Super Bowl or uh, you're not a big Rihanna fan, then uh, write down, or if you just want to know more about the text, actually, write down Ezekiel chapter 9, okay? Because what a lot of folks think about is that this is a very similar thing being described to Ezekiel chapter 9, where God's people were sealed in a unique way before really bad things happened, and because of that sealing, they were protected. So, Judgments are being held back. Nothing bad's yet allowed. Well, bad things aren't yet about to happen, allowed to happen, until there's this sealing of the servants of God on their foreheads. The question now becomes what does that sealing mean? Some people think it is a literal physical mark. Could be. Some people think it itself is symbolic language. There are times when in the New Testament, baptism is referred to as a seal. There are references in the New Testament to the Holy Spirit or Christ being a seal. And so some people think it's not an actual like stamp, but it is a symbolic, spiritual, right, a symbol, metaphor for something supernatural that is done to people who put their faith in Jesus. If I had to guess, I would lean more towards it is a symbolic thing, referencing something that's happened. Um, But the big point is that what God is saying is, look, hold on, let's look. Before judgments happened, there is a special thing that was done to the servants of God to protect them from what was going to happen. He's trying to remind people again of what he's already promised and what he's already done to them so they don't need to have fear. There's two different lines of thought about when this ceiling happens. Some people think that it happens, and again, I am going to wow you with my graphic design prowess. Are you ready for this? I mean, you better be ready, because whoever the graphic designer is for like Apple is going to start to quake in their boots, because look at this amazing, beautiful, well, oh, it just the lines, the symmetry. Okay, <clears throat> two thoughts on when. The ceiling happened, and I just look, can I just cause a pop call a timeout? I really work hard. I don't want us to ever feel shortchanged in the book of Revelation. So some of us come, and you have specific questions. Like, you want to know the 144. I want to make sure I'm giving us enough content, right? And I'm also trying to balance it. I'm just showing you up my sleeves. Like, I don't want to just have so many diagrams up here. You guys are like, look, I just want to know that God loves me, okay? So it is tough to try to navigate the balance, right? But let me tell you one option that some people spend a lot of press time about when the ceiling happens. They think that there's 95 A.D., they think under the futurist view that the tribulation happens. They think that we've been through seals 1 to 6. They argue that seal 7 starts stuff that gets even worse. And so here is where this symbolic or actual sealing takes place to continue to protect God's people if they're here, which we talked about a few weeks ago, um, from this coming. Okay? The other perspective is just as amazing graphic design, and it says that it actually happens Before, right? So, what is being described to these people here are these things that are coming down the road. We've already seen six or so phases of that in our study in Revelation 6. And what these people think is that this sealing, this special protection, this thing that is done so that if these people are present here, so that they will never experience God's wrath, they think that it happens before, right, symbolically or actually any of this happens. On this line in the sand, if you're like, Peter, what do you think? I think that this is a better representation of what is being described in the text. Because, and again, whether this is just sealing by what, you know, baptism spiritually or Jesus and faith or an actual one. If you look through the Bible, many times when God protects his people from bad things that are going to come, that protection often occurs before those bad things start to happen. If you read Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 9, there's all sorts of bad things that happen. The protection happens before. If you think about, if you know the story of Noah and the ark, it was this period where God's judgment came on the earth, and there were a certain group of people who were protected. But that protection happened before the really bad things started to happen. So I think there's this pattern or precedent of God uniquely protecting His people before a moment where he judges for sin, and they don't get any of that judgment. They're protected before any of that happens. I think precedent sets it up. Plus, the whole purpose of this chapter is to provide encouragement to his people. And it would make sense to remind them, guys, before you face any of this, I know you're worried because you've just heard this letter read. Before you face any of this, let me remind you of what I've already told you. I have promised to protect you. I have promised that you won't face any of my wrath. And he's reminding them of something that he's already done as an act to fulfill the promise that they can rest upon and they can have confidence in. He's already promised, if you remember, I know it was like three chapters, Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the wrath that's coming. He's promised these guys already, hey, I promised I'm going to keep you from it. Different ways that can happen. We talked about it. We threw confetti. We made a mess. But, but he's like, okay, guys, I know you're hearing this stuff. I know we're six chapters in. I know the question of who can stand, am I going to stand, is rolling through your minds. But I have already made a promise to you that you will never experience my wrath. And now what he's doing, it seems, is he's saying, and look, not only have I made that promise to you, I have taken an act in fulfillment. And in for furtherance of that promise to be sure that you're protected, I have already acted what God is saying. This is what God is saying. I have made promises to you here <clears throat> about how I'm gonna protect you here, about what you can expect here, about how I'm gonna care for you, about how I'm gonna protect you. And I have already taken an act to fulfill that promise towards you. I've already done something now to make good on that promise. And so here, guys, don't forget. Don't worry. Don't freak out about all this because remember what I've promised and remember what I've already done. To people who up to this point, would have been reading this letter who had doubts and who might have had worries and who might have been fears, what God was saying as a loving parent to the child who's freaking out, is said, don't worry. Don't worry. Remember what I have promised and know what I've already done. Don't worry. Remember what I've already promised. And know what I have done in fulfillment of that promise. And we're going to end our time by looping back to that template approach God uses of don't worry. Don't worry. Remember what I've promised and know what I've already done to make good on that promise. And we're going to think about this again at the end, but before we move into the next part that we move into, maybe this is just where you need to pause this morning. Maybe you just need to pause here. I'm going to give you a chance again, don't worry. But if you're anxious this morning, if you're uncertain this morning, if you don't know what's going to happen this morning... You don't know why it's happening this morning. If life is not working out according to the script that you wrote, and just FYI, it never does, then maybe what God wants you to be anchored to is the same approach that he used to anchor these people, and maybe through the way that he tried to console these children of his that he loved is the same approach he's trying to give to encourage you this morning where he's saying to you, don't worry remember what I've promised and know the way that I've already acted on that promise and what I've previously done. God wants to encourage them and God wants to encourage us. We we then move into this very Right, the general concept of seeing the saints, then there's this very specific clause that we could spend literally the next months talking about. I'm not going to spend months talking about one clause. But in the very next verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 4, there's this, there's this reference to these 144,000 people, 144,000 people. I would not be doing you justice as the guy explained the test if I just dodged over it, Though that would be a lot easier, but we're not. 144,000 is actually uh, really interesting because if you have any friends who are Jehovah's Witness, this is a huge part of their belief system, okay? So maybe you've never heard it in... Calvary Church before, but if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door or read any of their stuff, man, you're gonna, they're, all, they're all about 144,000. And So what in the world is it? What do we need to know about it? What, if anything, does it have to do with God trying to encourage us? So grab a sip of your coffee. Get one last caffeine bolus. Psst. That and let's press into 144,000. You ready? Good, because we're doing it. It's not a democracy. We're pressing on. Some of you are like, "No, we're not ready. Can we quit and go make our bean dip for tonight?" Not yet, because we got to talk about the 144,000. So here is what happens in verses four through eight. So there's this idea of the ceiling, and then it says this. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it walks down all these tribes and it says 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. So there's two questions we need to ask about this 144,000, okay? First question is this, and we're going to—first question is this, is, is that 144,000 a literal number or is it symbolic, is it literally saying that i've counted 1 2 3 4 5 6 143,000 144,000 okay is it a literal count or is it symbolic okay need to know that so some people will say it's symbolic and they will look to these various reasons they'll point out that certain number in the bibles <clears throat> bible are used to indicate completeness and they'll say that if you look at the way that the number 12 is used and the way the 1,000 is used, that those are examples of some numbers in the Bible that are a group, a number of things that are fully complete, and everything that was to be there is there. So they'll talk about the 12 disciples. Jesus wanted 12 disciples, got 12 disciples. When there were then only 11 disciples, they got another one, then they had 12 again, and 12 is this unit of that's complete, that's full, they don't need to be any more. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel is another example. They'll point to times when 1,000 is used in Scripture to show that there's a group of things that are just complete. Nothing else needs to be added in. Nothing needs to be taken away. It's good. And so then <clears throat> there's math that's done, and they'll people that say 12 squared, which is another full like yellow highlighter to be completeness, but 1,000 equals 144. And so they'll say, look, what's what this number is trying to say is that there is this group of people and that group is complete that group has everyone in there that needs to be in there there's nobody in there that you know there's nobody missing from that group it is it is in the words of the voice my team is full if you ever watch The Voice, it ends, you pick these singers, and when it all ends, there's this hoopla, and it's like, my team is now complete. This is, some people say, as if God is saying, look, this number right here is complete, is perfect. Other people will say, no. That is not, there's, other people will say it to be literal, that there is a very specific number of people mentioned, and there's no reason to take it as a symbol, take it on face value. If We're going to see, we got to talk about the 144 because we're going to see them again a couple of chapters down the road. So they're going to keep appearing. So we need to kind of like, who are these people? What's going on? Um, I don't know. It would be flippant to say flip a coin, and I don't want to be flippant. It's, I don't know. If you pressed me and said my next paycheck depended upon me telling you what it was, uh, I would lean towards it being symbolic, I would lean it to be towards God trying to convey that there's a group of people that are complete and full and fully assembled and fully present because when you look later at how it's used, it seems to be referencing a group larger than just 144,000. But I could be wrong, okay? But I would lean towards it saying symbolic. But then there's this second question of, okay, that's great. There's these 144,000. Well, who are they? Who are they? Jehovah's Witnesses, which we do not align with, right? We believe differently than Jehovah's Witnesses. They will say that those are, there's only going to be 144,000 people who are in heaven. So there is a spiritual place that is not this place, and only 144,000 people are going to end up there, and all the rest of the people under their belief system, who have an understanding of Jesus, will be here, but they're not like the elite ones, Okay. That's not a biblical view, but that is what you would hear from some of the Jehovah's Witness face. Uh, the question will kind of, when you break it down uh, among kind of our approach to Scripture, who are these people, there's two approaches. One is that these are Jewish Christians being specifically referenced. And so what's going on is, is this idea that, look, I've sealed all Christians, I've protected them, but man, now I'm going to get the microscope and I'm going to drill down on a specific group of Christians who are Jewish Christians. They will point to the fact that these folks are sealed from every tribe of Israel, that there are specific Jewish tribes named, and what people who fall into this will argue or suggest is that These are a special group of Jewish Christians. So all Christians are shield protected. But then you drill down with a microscope to this special subset of that, and these are special Jewish Christians that will have this special uh, role or opportunity during the tribulation. Okay? The next idea of who these people are are that essentially they're just all Christians. They're just this reference to all Christians, and within that are Jewish Christians, and what God is just trying to say is, look, all Christians are sealed, and within that group of sealed and complete and perfect Christians are uh, this group of Jewish Christians, right? That the Jews are still part of God's family, the Jews are still involved in this, but that it's a larger reference to the church as a whole. Now, have you ever been to New York City? and had a subway run underneath you. Ever had that experience? You're, no? Wow, let me tell you what happens. This will be amazing. You're walking. Or, interestingly, if you go to, a, I think it's, um, well, I don't know what it is, but there's a very famous music performance area that it, it is interrupted by the subway. And so they've spent millions upon millions upon millions to retrofit that with soundproof barriers so that you won't hear the subway. What happens in New York City is sometimes you're walking... You're smelling pretzels, you're smelling other stuff, and you hear this sound that goes, and oftentimes underneath this subway runs right. Underneath this is a subway of so much theology and theological dispute that it would take six months of classes in itself to describe it. Underneath this is the subway of whether the church has replaced Israel, or whether the Jewish people still have specific promises that they have yet to receive. We are not going to go into all that, but just so you know that, right? So two big options about what the 144 are are that they are a special subset of like a SWAT team of Jewish Christians, or that it's this reference to the church of a whole, and God is just saying to us, hey, and remember, My covenant people from the Old Testament are still part and are absolutely engaged and part of that complete number of the church of a whole. Could it be highlighting Jewish Christians? It could. Could it be referencing the church of a whole of which Jews, God's making sure we remember, are a part? It could be. So there you go, right? We, I can't say with certainty. I can't because the text allows both of those potential options. But, but. And I'll invite the worship team to come up here. Amidst what we don't know with certainty from this text, and if you want to learn more about it, I will give you resources. I mean, there, is, there are... When I say tons, I mean probably if you added up all the books that are written about this subject and the subway of church in Israel, it would equal tons, weight-wise, of pages. I can give you resources, you can press into it more, but, but here's what's really important, right? We don't know that with certainty, but there are some things that we do know with certainty. And amidst what we don't know with certainty, let's not miss what we do know with certainty and what we do know with certainty is that the purpose of chapter 7 the intent of chapter 7 was for God to encourage people who were facing questions whose world was rocked who didn't know and were asking themselves man am i going to make it am i going to stand and they had some concerns and they had some worries And God wanted to encourage them and pause and kneel down as a loving father and say, look, I got you. I want to remind you of some things. Two things from that that we know with certainty. And here's the first thing from that that we know with certainty. God cares about what you're feeling. And God wants to encourage you. This morning, If you are feeling joy, man, God cares about that and he knows that. If you're feeling discouragement, God knows about that and he cares about that. God cares about what we're feeling and he wants to encourage and comfort us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, right? It tells us to cast our anxieties on him. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. Whatever you're worried about, Whatever you're anxious about, bring it to him, and you bring it to him because he is your dad who loves you and who cares for you. And he cares for you because we know something about his character and attributes from Psalm 34 that tells us how the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What an amazing path. I'll just tell you, when I know that you're Some of you, and and there are so many people over literally the past 10 days in our congregation who have suffered loss. I mean, it is staggering, to be honest. And what my prayer is, I pray for you or for those people, is I pray this over them. I pray, God, you've promised to be near to the brokenhearted. Will you be near to these people in a unique, supernatural way? This morning, God cares about you, and He cares about what you're feeling. And you can confidently bring your anxieties to Him because He cares for you and because He promises that He is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. God cares about what you're feeling. First thing we know with clarity because his heart, was motivation, was to show that he cared for these people. Second thing is this. It's what we talked about before. But it's this amazing thing that he does to try to get these people, right? He, if you're anxious or worried, the way that he encourages them is a source of encouragement to you. What he does is he kind of says, look, remember what I promised you. I promised that you're never going to face wrath. And look what I've already done. And so this morning, if you're going through stuff, if you don't know, an amazing thing for you to do tomorrow morning is to get a piece of paper, get your iPad, do it digitally, do it out loud, do it however you're going to do it. But first, take some time remembering what God has promised. <laughs> Write down what has God promised. Write it down. Three or four things. Now, again, whenever I say this, your promises have got to come from this. It can't be a Tesla. I, do, I know Greek and Hebrew. I do not see the word Tesla in it, okay? So don't be like, oh, God, you've promised me a Tesla. No, he hasn't. Remember what he's promised you. And then the second thing for you to write down on the next page of the journal is, man, write down three or four things that he has already done in your past. And those are often the things that God uses to just help jolt us through just a pit of worry and anxiety and just to help just even for a few moments just settle us. Settle us. Next week, what we're going to talk about is we're going to get a picture of the final scene. We're going to get a picture as these people are wondering, man, can I stand? Am I going to make it? You know what? God's going to fast forward to us. He's going to show us an example of people who are standing because of his faithfulness and because of his deliverance, and there's amazing promises about the joy that they are experiencing. And that's next week, and I'm excited about it, and I hope that you come back for it. But this week, despite all that we don't know, there is a God who cares about what you are feeling. Remember what he has promised to you, and remember what he has already done. Father, we are grateful that you so personally care for us. And we are grateful that every single thing, that every single one of us in this room right now are navigating, are thinking, are experiencing, you know them all, God. And you care about them, and you're concerned about them, and you're sovereign over them, and you're more powerful than them. And you are a God who made us, who adores us, who values us, and who wants what is ultimately good for us. And Father, I pray that we can trust that. And I thank you for the hope you give us. I thank you for what you've already promised for us. And I thank you for what you've done for us. And I thank you for how great you are, and that we can trust your greatness and your love as we think about our future. Amen.